Please open your Bibles to the book of Acts. And I think what I'm going to do is let's back up one section of Scripture. I'll read the very end of Acts chapter 7 and couple it with our morning passage of 8, 1 through 4. Thematically, it's the same same idea. So we're, we're going to look at the the, the murder, the martyrdom of Stephen, and subsequent the persecution of this, the church, and one kicks off, um, kicks off the other. Where, where should we begin? Um, let, let's look at Acts seven, and I'll pick up from verse fifty-four. Hear the perfect word of our holy, perfect God. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, that Stephen. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen. They made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He had put them into prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are, you are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One blessed God, three blessed persons. What a great mystery. What a great truth stuff of your word, your Bible. You have convinced us, Holy Spirit. Thank you for subduing us to Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for dying for our sins and rising for our justification. Thank you for the word. What a light to our path, even when it tells us hard things. What a glorious book this is. May we be children of the book, people of the book, not just in word, not just hearers, but doers, Lord. To your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What I want to do this morning is I want to look at the passages before us first from a, a macro view, a big picture view, and then if we have some time, we'll look at um, a micro view. We'll dissect some of the pieces. Obviously, the title of the sermon is what? Persecution of the Church in Jerusalem. It could be persecution of the church just in general. I read uh, the prior verses that we looked at in chapter 7 because 8 through 4 is the providential result of the stoning of Stephen. Namely, as soon as they kill Stephen, the unbelieving Jews, the persecution of the Christian church in Jerusalem begins in earnest. And we'll see later, if we have a later, uh, later in chapter 8, later in chapter 9, certainly the Apostle Paul is going to be converted in chapter 9. But again, the, the, the larger theme that we're considering is the persecution of the Christian church. And for us as um, Christians, we would consider ourselves Bible-believing Christians. I know we hyphenate Christian all over the place, Protestant Christian, Reformed Christian, Puritan Christian, 
um, all, all true and all necessary. Those hyphens can be necessary to tell you what kind of Christian we are. If I could distill it down, we are the kind of Christians that believe the Bible is our rule for faith and practice. We're a sola scriptura. It doesn't deny Christian tradition, uh, but we, we don't base our Christianity on Christian tradition. We base our form of Christianity on the Bible. And so as Bible believers, the Bible tells us to be good Bereans. This is uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Be good Bereans. So everything that we hear doctrinally, propositionally, truth, some preaching, teaching, we should check it against the word. And then every practice that we hear being espoused or practiced, we should test that against the word. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, test every spirit, test every preacher, test whether they're, uh, they're, they are a, a, an ordained preacher or they're an unordained teacher. Test every religious thing that you hear and see against the Bible. And so what we're going to look at today is the life of the Christian in an anti-Christian world. And so the scripture is going to tell us right away, generally, that persecution for the life of a Christian in this life is normative. Persecution and suffering by people that hate Jesus in an anti-Jesus world towards people that love Jesus, that persecution and suffering is normative. It, it, it's normal, as it were. So, th- so when fiery trials come upon you for your presentation of Christ's gospel, for your trying to live holy in a, in a, a sinful world, and you receive the enmity, the hatred of, of, of those that hate Jesus, nothing strange is happening to you. This is normal. So when you receive that persecution, don't be thinking, am I doing something wrong? Ordinarily, if you're living for Christ and speaking for Christ, and you're being hated like Christ, you're doing something very, very right. Jesus says, as they treated him, John chapter 15, they're going to treat his servants. So we're seeing right away, the general lesson is, persecution for the Christian, and the Christian church corporately, is normative for the believer. And the second thing I want to say, and this is, this is going to be... Um, I, I, perhaps I should make a little bit of application for that. When we consider that suffering or persecution is normative for the believer, our brother George alluded to it in Sunday school. Um, some of our sadness that we have, some of us are constitutionally wired to be more melancholy than other people. I, I understand that. And all that means is you should have more Irish than other people. But um, some of our sadness, anxiety, worry, frustration, some of the things that we go through that along those lines occur in our lives because of our wrong thinking, even as believers. Believers can think, I know this is true, that life should be easier than it really is for us. And life shouldn't be as hard as it really is for us. And then we wonder, why is life so hard? Why is life so difficult? I'm miserable because these things occur. When we look at this passage, again, just in a big theme idea, that persecution for believers is normative. It it casts us back on this truth. If we're the servants and the world hated our master and killed and persecuted our master, why do we, as the servants, think that we should get better treatment than our master? Do you ever wonder that? Why should we have an easier life than our Christ had? If we, this passage is meant to instill in us the mindset of a soldier servant. 
We are the church at war, not with bombs and bullets, but on our knees and with the word. We're not the church at rest. And so if you're a soldier and you're out in the field, you're not wringing your hands. Why am I sleeping in a crater eating cans out of a bean? Because you're in, in, in uh, beans out of a can, because you're in a war. You're not at home. You're not at rest. And so when we consider the, the, the teaching, applicatory teaching, that persecution is meant to instill in us, is that we are the church at war. And we are to fully expect that this life, I'm not walk, saying we walk around like a hair shirt, flagellating ourselves, but we would be actually more content, and I would argue even happier, if we realized that we are meant to receive the same kind of treatment our Christ. And then as a very um, a secondary thing that we glean from this passage, look at verse 1 and then verse 3 of chapter 8. Persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. You see that? That's... Um, and then Saul began ravaging the church again in Jerusalem. This is, I, I don't mean to make a lot out of this, but it's in the passage as we're considering what persecution of the church teaches us. One, that is normative. And second, that there is a thing called the church. There's an entity of the church and that individual Christians belong to a local manifestation of the church. And what, what am I getting at? We're Americans, most of us. Um, my wife's naturalized citizen, and, and and Americans tend to think like individualistic, and it, that that and I suppose some of that can be good, um, bootstraps kind of mentality, but that can also morph into something bad. It's just a me and Jesus idea. Now, with that said, it is very true um, that Jesus Christ saves one sinner at a time. One sinner at a time gets on his knees before the cross and beats their breast and says, "Thou son of David, have mercy on me." So God's not saving a mass, en mass. He does save individuals one at a time. But this notion of me and Jesus, which is true, individual faith, salvation in Christ, it doesn't negate the corporate body of the church. I would argue in modern America, it doesn't matter what denomination, we live in days of, of very low ecclesiology. We just think, well, I'm going to just sit at the house and me and Jesus and the hour of power and my house cat, that's all I need. That, that's not what we find in the, in, in the Bible. The church is being persecuted. It's not, a, it's not individual Christians sitting at home watching Hour of Power with their cat that are being persecuted. These people who are joined to Jesus, immediately they're joined to other people. Spiritually, they're joined to Jesus. So spiritually, Christians are joined to Jesus Christ and thus the Godhead. And mystically and spiritually, we're joined to other Christians. And when we come to the scriptures, we have to ask ourselves, does the scripture teach a form, and I, I'm going to say this generally, does the scripture teach a form of church membership? I'm not talking Presbyterianism or Congregationalism or Episcopalianism as far as a form of church government. Does the New Testament church teach a form of church membership? In other words, was there a body that was called the church and they met at Jerusalem and did it constitute certain people in that church? And the answer is what? Yes. So we want to be a good Berean. Does, what does the Bible say is normative for the life of a believer? We're going to receive enmity, persecution. What does the Bible say about church membership? That people that join themselves to Jesus are then joined to a local body. Read the, read the Bible, for example. To the saints uh, at the church in Rome, to the saints of the church in Philippi, to the saints in the church at Corinth. So if this, and again, I'm not arguing here for a form of church government, obviously I'm Presbyterian. But the notion is that these local Christians 
on the Lord's Day met one another and they worshipped the Lord corporately. And so then when persecution came, it came for the church. We live in, as I say, um, days of low ecclesiology, but it's the last days. And one of the things that manifested in the last days is it's kind of like the book of Judges. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. And, and I just had four days of watching grandchildren, and I couldn't help but think in George's teaching, we are big children. Little children are, are flaming little autonomous little things, and your whole goal in life is to shape them and make them submissive, however that works. But that's us. We want to do what's right in our own eyes. But we see here that it is also normative that Christians join themselves to a local body. And if the Bible teaches it, we embrace it. If it doesn't, we reject it. So we've seen the scriptures teaching us about persecution, about church membership. Now, in this particular section that we just read, both from chapter 7 and chapter 8, the Bible is the word of God, the very word of God. It's inerrant. It doesn't have any errors. It's infallible. It cannot um, lie. It cannot err. Uh, it's inspired by God, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 17. It's God-breathed. God cannot lie. I know there is a heresy afoot called open theism. It says that God can learn. I think there's also people that say God does lie. The Bible says categorically God does not lie. Um, lying is, a, is an expression of the devil. The devil is a, the father of lies. Jesus is truth personified. So when we come to the Bible, the Bible presents the truth. Now you may say, well, that's circular reasoning. You're saying the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. You ready? The Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. (laughs) However you want to call that. I call that faith. If you want to call it circular reasoning, I'll dress it up and call it presuppositional reasoning. But it's faith. Without faith, it's impossible to, to, to please God. And without faith in God, this book is a closed book. So when we come as believers looking for the truth of Jesus, we come to the Bible. Who is Jesus? What has he come to do? The Bible tells us. And the same is true for what we're looking at here, which is an expression of the Christian life. This is an expression of the Christian life, or if I could put it this way, Christian discipleship. The Bible will tell us what it's like to be a, what a real Christian is. They repent of their sins. They come to Jesus Christ as their only sin bearer, their only sin atoner. They put their only hope for life and death in him. That's a real believer. That's that faith alone in Christ alone. And from that comes a life of this. So true believers will begin to live like what we're seeing here. People that live for Christ, testify for Christ, and die for Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible will tell us not only the truth of Jesus, it will tell us the truth of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus says, count the cost. What does he mean? Count the cost of being a disciple. Again, macro view. This is the life of a disciple. And Jesus Christ pays for all of our salvation. We pay for none of it. But does that negate the fact there is a cost to follow Jesus? Not a meritorious cost. We're not earning our salvation or justification, anything like that. But is there a cost to to follow Jesus and to live for Jesus in an anti-Christ world? Yes, there's a cost. There is a cost. Jesus says, count the cost before you come to me, because there's a weighty cost. And sometimes, and I don't mean to pick on anyone that shares Jesus, I really don't. You know, we we say sometimes people, at least in my college, the kids would say, Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, you should believe in Jesus. And for us reforms, we like to sit around and poo-poo all of that, 
to which I say you should get off your backside and go tell someone about Jesus, at least the kids telling people about Jesus. But the problem with that is it doesn't really present the true truth of, of, of living for Christ. Jesus, when he says count the costs, he means there, there are costs, and there are weighty costs. And even what we're looking at here, Jesus says part of the cost is you're going to be walking on a, a narrow and a hard road, and few are going to be on it. And one of the hard things of being on that narrow, hard road with a few people is you're looking around at the broad path, which is what we are. Look at us. I don't know how many people are here. We're narrow road folks. This is part of the the cost of discipleship, the persecution, the hardship that we endure. We look around at the broad path people who live without any restraint, and they look like they're having a big time. This is Psalm 73. They're having a great time. And we're three people in a house cat, and we're being persecuted. And that adds to our suffering. But it shouldn't. It shouldn't, because our God has told us that these things will happen in advance. So the book of Acts is about the extension of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ by the proclamation of the gospel, by the work of disciples. This is how the gospel goes forth. The Christian life is very active. It's not passive at all. It's, you see the persecution comes. Stephen gives his life and testimony of Christ. And then the gospelers go out, out to the four corners telling people about Jesus. And that's how the kingdom is advanced. And this particular book shows us the active life of those who follow Jesus Christ. It's the carrying out of the Great Commission. And sometimes in God's providence... We've all prayed this. Many of us have come to places in our lives where there's someone in our life that's near death and we desperately don't want them to die. And in God's providence, they die. And in that instance, God has said no to us. Sometimes it's God's will in God's providence that people we love die. And we could be the person ourselves. You've seen many people pray that God would heal them and God doesn't heal them and God takes them home. And the point without making an application with this, it was God's will, his, his decretive will. It was against his revealed will, thou shalt not murder, but it was according to his decretive will that Stephen died. And it was according to the decretive will, the hidden will of Almighty God, that the church suffer persecution and thus be scattered to the four corners of the, the world. And the application I'm making is, sometimes in God's providence, he calls his beloved children, his servants, even his gospel servants, to seal their testimony with their blood. Jesus Christ says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So when you think of the life of a Christian, a real follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a life of cross-carrying, flesh-denying, self-denying, world-denying, devil-refuting, world-refuting, faith-living life is everything. He purchased us body and soul with his precious blood and we give him body and soul, everything. And sometimes in God's providence, he calls us to face very, very hard things, <coughs> even death, um, for our testimony of Christ. Now, the reason I say the Bible presents this truthfully as we're reading the Bible, this is because of something that most of us already know, as I alluded to. Men are liars. They're natural-born liars. Um, you don't have to teach a little kid to lie. All of us have kids or grandchildren, and the parents or the grandparents didn't teach them to lie. And that little kid, they can lie. They're not good at it yet, but they can lie. 
because they're natural born liars. The Bible says in Romans 2 or 3, I forget, that all men, let all men be liars if they deny God and God be true. So if the Bible tells you who Jesus is, and the Bible tells you what the life of a Christian is, <laughs> it's a life of cross-carrying, even death-facing, even dying for Christ's cause, as the Bible says, there's a cacophony, there's a plethora of other voices out there that present a different form of a Christ, they present a different form of a, of a, of a Christian life, and they'll say something like this. You can go, you've probably been to these churches. Come to Jesus, let Jesus, let Jesus be your Lord and Savior, and you'll have health, wealth, and pleasures in this life, your best life now. Just say yes to Jesus, and you're going to be healthy and wealthy, and everyone will love you. You're going to have your best life now. What do you think about that, beloved? That is a lie. That is a lie. If this is your best life now, that's a pretty lousy thing. Because heaven, I thought, was way better than this. And it is. When someone says, say yes to Jesus, and you're going to be healthy and wealthy, and you're going to have total pleasures in this life, remember, as they treated our Christ, they're going to treat the servants of Jesus. Read Isaiah 53. He was a man of what? Sorrows. 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 And he bore the sins of his people. And he lived a whole life of suffering, humiliation, and shame. Now he's in a state of exaltation. But beloved, we are testing the form of Christ being presented to us by the Bible. We're, being, we're testing the form of Christianity being presented to us by the Bible. So if some Christian says to you, all you have to do is say the, the magic formula and you can have an easy, squeezy life and you don't have to be sick anymore, get out your Bible. Paul had an eye problem. Timothy had a stomach problem. He, was, he had an anxiety problem. Get out your Bible. So the Bible is true and there, the Christian, the Christian field, as it were, is filled with many, many unbiblical forms of Christianity, I hate to say so the flesh is what presents life in Christ untruthfully. And what we're learning in this passage, again, just generally, is that the children of darkness are opposed and hate the children of light. This is that spiritual warfare that, that God says he himself will establish from Genesis 3, 1 through 8, certainly 1 through 15, excuse me, 1 through 15. So what we have here is the children of darkness are hating the children of light. And the children of light are those people that believe in and love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, read John chapter 1, uh, 10 through 13. Think of, um, and in case you think, well, Pastor John, you want to keep your church uh, uh, nice and small and man manageable by preaching the hardship of the Christian life. No, that's not my business. Martin Lloyd-Jones said our calling is to fill up heaven, not to fill up churches, and the two are not the same. And the only way that you fill up heaven is by preaching the law and the gospel. I could fill this church tomorrow if uh, I put a, an announcement out on the internet saying I'm going to give free beer and we're going to have, um, I don't know, bear baiting or bull baiting, right? There would not be a chair in this place if I had a, a cowboy church, a rodeo church, a kung fu church, a, weir, a, a beer and whiskey church, a cigar church. There would not be a, a seat here. You'd need to, I, I could sell tickets. Could I not? That doesn't get you into heaven. I mean, I've never seen a rodeo, but I suppose it'd be kind of cool. But what does Jesus say the life of a Christian is? In this life, you'll have much what? Jesus says all, the Paul says, all who desire to live godly in this life will, will, will what? Will be persecuted. 
And just as an aside, if you're a Christian and people that are open anti-Christians, they hate Jesus, if they speak well of you, Jesus says, beware when all men, meaning all unbelieving men, speak well of you. If you're a supposed Christian and all open, professed anti-Christians think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know what it means? You, you, never say, you never say the name Jesus. You never say the gospel. You're not trying to expose deeds of darkness. You're not trying to live a life of holiness. I'm not arguing that we should be obnoxious when we go to Thanksgiving dinner with our unbelieving family. But Jesus says, beware when all men speak well of you. Because look at what they did to Stephen. They killed him. Look at what they did to the rest of the people living for Jesus. They threw them in jail and wanted to kill them. So the Bible tells us about the true Christ. The Bible tells us about the true life of being a Christian. I read chapter 7 because it shows us the beginning of the persecution. Saul was in hearty agreement with stoning Stephen uh, to death. Now, one of the things that we learn here is let's just call the entity that stoned Stephen the household of faith because they were. They were Jews. They were not Gentiles. So unbelieving members of the household of faith, they murdered a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So unbelieving members of the household of faith murdered a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, Stephen, and then began to persecute the rest of the believers in the Jerusalem church. These people, they stoned Stephen as a blasphemer against God, and they did so by lying, by false witnessing, and they committed what I would argue is religious murder under the guise of doing something holy and something right. And we see here some things that we've said previously, and I, I don't mean to harp on this incessantly. No visible church saves. The OPC doesn't save, the PCA doesn't save, the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't save, a Baptist church doesn't. No visible church saves. You could be a member of a visible church. Take your pick. Take your pick. You could be circumcised. You could take the Passover and kill the Lord Jesus Christ, which people that were circumcised and took the Passover killed the Lord Jesus Christ. They're unbelievers. Unbelievers in the household of faith, but they're unbelievers. And they show their unbelief with their hatred against God come in the flesh. And they do it under the guise of religiosity. We're true believers. We have to kill Jesus. He's a blasphemer. And the very same thing happens. So if a person says, I'm baptized, I take the Lord's Supper, big deal. People that were baptized and took the Lord's Supper killed Jan Hus and they killed William Tyndale by, in vicious ways. So being a member of the visible church, being a recipient of the sacraments is not the same thing as being converted to Jesus Christ. And we learn here, the visible household of faith, the Bible says not all have faith. Gold is so precious, diamonds are so precious because it's rare. I would argue this, beloved, faith in the visible church is rare. It's not, I have no idea who truly believes. This is God the Holy Spirit's business. It was the visible household of faith that butchered Jesus. It was the visible household of faith that butchered Stephen and tried to butcher the institution of the New Testament church because they had a name that they were alive, but spiritually they were dead. So by way of application, if you go to a church that says, our church, you need to be a member of our church to be saved, you should leave. You go to a church that says the sacraments are saving you, i.e. justification or converting you. You need to leave. That is not true. 
That is not true. Those are the very kind of people that ended up killing Christ and Christ's servants. And what we're looking at is, uh, arguably, these are religious people committing religious murder. I would argue a little bit that religious unbelievers are the worst kind of unbelievers. I understand that it was state, the state that did the dirty work and killed Christ, but it was the visible household of faith that got them to do the dirty work. The worst enemies of the church are people that are within the church that are unconverted, not the Hindu or the Muslim or the Buddhist. It's the false Christian. It's the unbeliever in the church, usually the unbelieving minister uh, or elder, uh, as, as we have. But what we're looking at here by these Jews who profess to believe in Jehovah, but they don't, they kill Christ, they kill Stephen, they attempt to kill these, these Christians, is this. Unbiblical forms of the faith, if I could apply it to Christianity, unbiblical forms of Christianity do not convert anyone. Unbiblical forms of Christianity leave natural man as natural man. And if you come to this church a few times, you know that I love George Whitfield. George Whitfield said, natural man, he's exactly right, is half a beast and half a devil. Is he not? I'm kind of a student of war. I like to study war. I don't know why I do. Um, my daughter just got me a book, uh, Carnage in Culture, by a fellow by the name of Victor Davis Hansen. And he's, it's a very interesting thesis on Western culture and the business of warfare. Um, but when you look at human beings, Romans chapter 3, 8 through 19, human beings are bloodthirsty people until we're converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these religious people who had a form of religion, they were unconverted. And I would argue this, just as by way of application. One of the things that left them unconverted, the people that killed Christ, that killed Stephen, and are attempting to kill the Christians in the Jerusalem churches, their form of Judaism was not a biblical form of Judaism. It was a, a traditions-based form of Judaism. This is why today, even now, you'll say, what about the really, really conservative Jewish folks out there? There are no biblical Jews out there unless you're a Christian because you can't be a biblical Jew right now because there's no temple, there's no priesthood, there's no sacrifices. So it's, you simply cannot be. It's a traditions-based form of Judaism. And it's the traditions of men. And the, the religious traditions of men, as Jesus says in Mark's chapter... Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. The traditions of men, religious traditions, nullify the word of God. But here's the danger. It lets you feel like you're serving God. So people that thought they were serving God by murdering Jesus because of their perverted form of religion. So unbiblical forms of the Christian faith leave human beings unconverted. And they live like this. They live like this. Try this out. Pick a church, you'll know them, that is not a Bible church. It's a traditions-based church. Try this out. Ask the people, tell me about the gospel. Tell me about your life. Should we live a life of holiness? Begin to, to see, is there a difference between the life of a Bible form of Christianity versus a traditions-based form of Christianity? And you'll soon find that the enmity of the traditions-based form is against the word-based form. Another thing that we see here in our passage is, look at what unbelieving people in the household of faith do against the servants of God, namely the preachers. Namely the preachers. 
When you read the prophets of God, I'm thinking of Jeremiah, I'm thinking of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel. Remember that passage in Isaiah's gospel, here I am, Lord, send me, Isaiah 6, that all the churches use it as an evangelistic passage. You know that passage? What was Isaiah's mission? God said, go out to the people, the Jews, it wasn't to the Hittites, go to the Jews, and most of them are not going to listen to you, and they're going to hate you. Read Jeremiah chapter 1. Read Ezekiel chapter 3. They're called to ministry. Jeremiah, preach the word to my people. They're not going to listen to you, and they're going to hate you. Ezekiel, they're not going to listen to you, and they're going to hate you. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 21, after God, the owner of the vineyard, sends all of these prophet servants with his word to his people, and they stone some and kill, kill others, he says, this is my beloved son. I'll send him. They'll listen to him. And what did people in the household of faith that had no faith do to the final prophet, Jesus Christ? What did they do to him? They brought him out of Jerusalem and they killed him. Beloved, what did they do to Stephen? Stephen's filled with the Holy Ghost. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's a man who loves Christ, who's faithful to the gospel of Jesus. He's living a holy life. What do these people who call themselves Jews and they're not What do they do to the preacher of God's word? They kill him. And by way of application, and I don't mean, I don't feel, I'm not feeling very much like sucking my thumb. Sometimes I do like to feel, suck my thumb, but not today. Everybody loves to get on their pity pot, but it's not manly to sit on your pity pot. Um, Young minister, young prospective ministers should come here. When they, I'm called to the ministry. I'm called to the ministry. In a reformed churches, it means like, we have a form of, of, of ministry. You like big words. You like theology. You like Calvin. You smoke a pipe. You smoke a, a cigar. You like single malt scotch. And you like to think you're smart. You need to sell life insurance. You need to sell life insurance. You're not going to make it. This is not the ministry. You ask any minister or any former minister, what's the ministry? It's that. We're going to kill you. (laughs) We're going to kill you. Jesus preaching in Luke chapter 4. He says, the book of Isaiah, I've done it. And you know what they said? They went from going, wow, this guy is so great. And he says, God saves Gentiles. And you know what they said? We're going to kill you. Beloved, not only is the life of the Christian one in an antichrist world of persecution, the life of the gospel minister, the life of a a man who's faithful to the word, the flesh hates it. The flesh hates the word of God, whether it's the flesh of the person in the church or outside of the church. My niece is an unbeliever, she would say, and she's doing a series of articles on some evangelical Christians. And the evangelical Christians that she's doing articles on are goofy. They're messing up. They clearly are. And so I was sharing with her and with my sister, my form of Christianity is even more offensive (laughs) than this girl, this woman's mess up. Namely, the truth that I believe you find more obnoxious than someone's trying to shake people down for money. Jesus pays for sins by his blood. Only those found in Jesus go to heaven. Everyone else goes to hell. When we come here, the man of God testifies with his own blood what it means to serve Christ in an antichrist world, even sometimes in an antichrist church. I would argue... Beloved, only when Christ 
and God the Holy Spirit subdue our hearts to the Bible, can we sit under the truth of God's word? Otherwise, we won't. If it's not what I like, I'm going to kill the messenger. And it, usually our flesh doesn't like what the Holy Spirit likes. So the unconverted hate the messenger of God. And of course, they hate the messenger of God, Christ Jesus. Stephen is a martyr. We've said this before. The word in Greek, one of the root words means uh, a witness, is a martyr. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the faithful martyr. But in verse 1, we're told that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. Another thing that we find here in the persecution of the church, which is interesting because we know the rest of the Bible, get ready for this. This is going to be a stunner. The unconverted were at one time unconverted. Now, you may be the two guys named Fred that were converted in the womb. Maybe you were Jeremiah. Maybe you were John the Baptist that God regenerated you in the womb. I don't know. But what we're looking at here is we're looking at a man here um, who is the apostle Paul, was at one time the Pharisee Saul. And before Saul was converted, he's unconverted. I know that seems simplistic, but sometimes it's not. Um, do we believe election? Yes, we believe, believe election. Before our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches us that we were children of wrath, even as the rest. Before our personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we were children of disobedience, even as the rest. The Apostle Paul didn't start off life as the Apostle Paul. We're seeing here that the converted were at one time unconverted. And before Paul was Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, before Paul was Paul, he was Saul the Pharisee. And before he became a servant of Christ, he was a hater of Christ. And he was a hater of Christians, and he tried to destroy the church. And this is here for our encouragement. Sometimes we think, well, does that person look Presbyterian? Does that person look Reformed? Don't ever do that, beloved. Don't, don't ever do that. Don't ever look at a person, whether you think they're a believer. And let's say you think, oh, they're, they're unbelievers. Do, they think they're gonna, do I think they're going to fit in a Reformed church or a Bible church or a Calvinistic church? Don't ever do that. Don't ever pre-qualify anybody. Don't ever look at a human being and say, yeah, they're probably good prospects for being a Christian. Who's a good prospect for being a Christian? I'll tell you who a good prospect for being a Christian is. You ready? A stinking sinner. Liars, fornicators, drunkards, homosexual offenders, blasphemers, murderers. You know I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Such were some of you. The Apostle Paul's a murderer. Many years ago, I watched a stoning on YouTube of people in, uh, it was in Haiti. They did this thing, they took a tire and they jammed it over a guy and they set it on fire and they stoned him. And why I watched it, I don't know. It's like you can't turn your eyes away from something. If you watch someone holding the coats, heartily approving of someone stoning another human being to death, would you go, that guy's probably about to be a Christian. He's probably going to be one of the best ministers that ever lived. But that's exactly what happened. This is testimony, not just the anti-Christ, satanic hatred of the church, even implicitly, this is a testimony on the power of the grace of God in Jesus. Jesus is in the saving sinners, real sinners, Christ haters, Satan servers, murderers, and he saves them. But we see before Paul was converted he was unconverted but it is a it's a it's an encouragement to us
and we notice that the converted people mourn the death of the converted, one of the things about the Christian church, I said at the outset, we're joined to Jesus and we're joined to one another. And I hope that you know this is true. I'm Reformed. I'm Westminsterian. It's all true. But as Christian people, don't you love other Christians that love Christ? If you're a Lutheran, Baptist, Episcopalian, we, we differ all over the lot. And, and, um, and we differ on secondary or tertiary things. But don't you still love them? Don't you still consider them your brothers and sisters in Jesus? And as they mourn, you mourn. And as they rejoice, you rejoice. Because there's a solidarity, there's a, there's a, there's a, a filial connection. And so we see the people mourning the death of Stephen. And you would ask me, why are they mourning? And you, if you've ever lost a loved one, every once in a while you'll meet someone that does this in the Christian church. And if this is you, please stop this. If you, you, you just bury your mom, you, you just bury, yesterday was my mom's first year death anniversary. You, you bury your, your mom, you bury your dad. And some well-meaning Christian meets you and says, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Zip zow. We know to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. They're, they're totally rejoicing. What's wrong with you? You know what you should say? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Look at Paul. Paul's weeping over Epaphroditus that he was sick unto death and that God spared him sorrow. Read the Bible. These people are weeping over Stephen. Jesus wept over Lazarus. It doesn't deny that to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. Death is not a pleasant thing. And when we lose a loved one in this life, we're not going to be with them for a while. And it's a sorrowful thing. And it shows the solidarity. But we also see something else. Converted people love other converted people, but the unconverted don't love the converted people. At the very occasion of mourning, the persecution of the church starts up in earnest. If you think the devil is going to fight fair, I've, I've prayed this sometimes. You get knocked in the head somehow, physically, emotionally, filial. You're, you're knocked in the head. And you say to the devil, listen, if you kick me in the shins, could you just like give me about two weeks to catch my breath before you punch me in the temple? Just give me, let me catch my breath. Just one punch at a time. Beloved, that's not, not how this works. The devil's not a gentleman. The people that serve the devil are, are not gentlemen. They're going to use the very occasion of your mourning when you're at your weakest to attack you. And we learned something else about this passage. Sin grows. We see from the moment of killing Stephen, the persecution of the church begins in earnest. And partly because of this reason. Unbelievers reason like unbelievers and they look around and go, well, we killed Jesus and God didn't come down and strike us dead. We killed Christ's servant and he didn't come down and strike us dead. It means that God doesn't see. It means that God approves. But that's not what it means. And when we see them going from the, 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 the death of the servant now to the persecution of the rest of the church, and I mentioned sin grows, this is from James chapter 1. Beloved, if you're playing with a sin, wherever it may be, and for a lot of I can't say a lot. I can't quantify it. But I know that this is a scourge in the church. Pornography and, and sexual addictions and so on is a scourge of the church. But it would be applicable to other truths. If there's a sin that you're playing with in your life, I'm going to tell you that that sin is going to grow. It's going to start off little and manageable. If you don't kill that critter, it's going to grow larger. It's going to, it's going to go from the closet like they kill it, <coughs> killing Stephen. <coughs> and now it's coming out into the open. 
That's a gene. It, we still, sin grows in quality, it grows worse, and it grows in quantity. We sin more. And that's just by way of application. And they grow bolder in their hatred of Christ and his Christ's servants. Sorry for my, my, my breathing and so on. It's not my breathing, it's my gastro things. Um, now they arrest the believers. I'm going to say this and then I'm going to quit. So they arrest the believers, which is part of the persecution. They're going to throw them in jail. And what we find here is that owning Jesus as the Christ has become illegal. I want you to stop and think about it. Everyone's political. We all have our political views. I, just, I try to be not a political preacher, though I, I have a political creature. Talk to me at the house. I try to tether myself to the word. But owning Jesus has been a crime according to the church. Owning Jesus will in time become a crime according to the state. I want to ask you a question. What will you do as a believer in Jesus if believing in Jesus Christ becomes a crime, which it is here a crime? It's a crime to believe in Jesus, that he's the only Savior the only way to the Father, the only atoner of sins. It's faith alone and Christ alone, as the scripture declares, alone is a crime, punishable by death. What will you do? You personally, have you ever thought of that? Would you defy the authority of the church that declared it a crime? Would you defy the authority of the state that declared it a crime? And you, would you be willing to seal your testimony that Jesus is the Christ with your death? Would you? We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. We're called to live our lives according to the word of God. I, 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 I am not arguing here. I'm not sedition or anything like that. And notice when persecution comes, when it becomes a crime, notice what the Christian church does. When it becomes a crime to own Jesus, and they're going to be locked up, notice what the Christian church does not do. Look at your Bibles. Where in verses 1 through 4 do the Christians band together and they buy used howitzers online? Is that in the text? Are they buying old M1 Garands to stop the persecution? Are they? You think I'm being silly. I am not being silly. We live in days where Christian hyphen nationalism, which I don't know what this is, and I don't even know what it is. I know you lose Christian when you hyphen anything to it. I do know that. I don't find the Bible teaches that Christians, when they're being persecuted, go join a militia and they gun down their persecutors. I don't find it. I find what they do is they run away. Jesus says, if they persecute you, and what does Jesus say? I know people think that I'm a communist weenie. I'm not. If our government said for me to put a green uniform on, I would put a green uniform on. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says sometimes it's time to die. Sometimes it's time to seal your, your testimony with your blood. And beloved, we are called to walk by faith in the Son of God, we'll walk by faith in the Word of God, and then to pray for those who persecute us, And then if it's God's will that we be those who 
suffer even unto death, Jesus says he'll give us a crown of life. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.